Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th and remember, we all flourish with joy. live on Joy 94.9 Saturday afternoon from noon via the live stream at joy.org.au forward slash listen live or tune your wireless in Melbourne to 94.9 FM. Afternoon, welcome to Technogaze, the show where we gaze into the world of consumer electronics, gadgets, and technology. My name is Mark, and with me in the studio, we're uh, making a bit of a habit of this one. Uh, Johnny, hello, Johnny. Hello, I'm back. He's back. Yep. Here's Johnny. Oh, I'm sure oh, he's never heard that joke. <laughs> yeah. We were, we were going to try and prepare that audio, but unfortunately we didn't get a chance. Next to. time, next time. Next time, yes. Uh, also uh, in the studio is Rainer. Hello. And Michael. Hello there. And I have a very special hello that I want to say. Yes. Ooh, hello too. Yes, I want to say hello to my nephew Nathan. Nathan, if you're listening, hi. Hi. Nathan. Hi, Nathan. On today's show, we'll be kicking off with a roundup of the latest in tech news, including we're revisiting it again, Uber. Um, UberX uh, drivers are being fined in Victoria by the Taxi Services Commission for driving passengers for a fare without proper licences. Uh, Uber uh, further puts its foot down in it. Um, it. Actually, no, sorry, they put their foot in it, in their mouth perhaps, by... Um, sending a copy of its advice on how to answer media questions to the media. Well, that's good, because that way the media doesn't have to listen. They can just copy it. <laughs> or just comment on the fact that they received a copy of the comments, as exactly. opposed to... Yeah. Uh, Japan. Why, uh, we love Japan, don't we? We mm-hmm. certainly do love Japan. They're, they're resurrecting science fiction with talk of launching a space-based solar array. Uh, off into um, off into space. That's what what space based solar arrays are. It's very SimCity, isn't it? I think it's awesome. It should be uh, yes. Mm. Apparently, it will beam energy to Earth uh, to supply the country's electricity grid. Well, hopefully, people won't find it as apparently offensive as the wind turbines in uh, in Bungendore. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love I love green energy. Ray of light being sent down to Earth. I could just what could possibly go wrong? Oh, what a concentrated beam of light! Oh, <laughs> Nothing could go wrong. Especially, <laughs> I think I've seen a few animes about that sort of thing going on. Actually, wasn't there an entire Bond? Uh, uh, <gasps> Goldeneye, yeah, wasn't it? Goldeneye? Goldeneye? Yeah. Was that the one with? One the, of or them. Was it, I can't remember. Yeah. They all sort of the snow and the ice and the. 
Just things. don't let me put in the coordinates of where the beam should go and then it should be fine. <laughs> now, Joy is a proud media partner of the Human Rights, Arts and Film Festival here in Melbourne this week. And we have an interview with Brian Knappenberger, the writer and director of the movie documentary titled The Internet's Own Boy, uh, which is a chronicle of the life of hacktivist and internet prodigy Aaron Schwartz. Later on in gaming-related news, we will be looking at Nintendo's new life sim uh, and their their other new uh, title. Well, it's an old title, really. It's a refresh of Pokemon. Woo! Sorry. <laughs> I'm a little bit excited. A lot of people wet their pants over that. <laughs> Reino is one of them. I did not. <laughs> Due to excitement, of course. Oh, of course. Uh, not so good uh, changes are happening to blogging laws in Russia that will further restrict free speech in that country, <laughs> as if it hadn't been affected already. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the uh, speaking of free speech, uh, the Iranian uh, government are looking to censor um, the app WhatsApp um, simply because it was recently acquired by Facebook, who of course was founded by Mark Zuckerberg, who is Jewish. Oh. Hmm sad news there. Chilling news, in fact. Uh, We'll wrap up the show by looking at uh, Oracle founder Larry Ellison. Who wrote this? (laughs) I have no idea, but I know this one tickled your fancy. (laughs) So we we find out who is lucky enough to be responsible for catching Larry Ellison's balls. And this will become clearer Um. later on. (laughs) It will, and I promise it's family friendly. <laughs> now, if, as always, if you'd like to contact us in the studio, you can do so by texting us 0427 JOY949. You can email us on air at joy.org.au. You can leave a message with Mushin on 1300 JOY949 with the telephone. The mm. tireless Mushin. He's always there at the, in the, the front desk for us. And if you have our smartphone app, not only can you be listening to us with the smartphone app, but you can text us or call us or do any of those things as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm. And, of course, there are the Twitters. Technogaze, T-C-H-N-O-G-A-Z-E. The Twitters. Did we mention Facebook yet? We did. No, no we didn't, no. actually. I've worked out we have to beg. We want more likes on our Facebook page. Beg, okay. beg, beg. If, mm. you, if you like us on Facebook, we will mention you on air. So, is that a guarantee? That's a guarantee. So just search for Technogaze on Joy 94.9. Ironclad guarantee. Mm-hmm. None and of this Australian government guarantee. Done. And for those that are lower tech, like me, we have windows here, so you can send, it up, uh, send up a smoke signal and we'll... <laughs> or a pigeon. <laughs> will, or a carrier pigeon and we'll read your message out. The windows don't open, so I don't know how we're going to get the carrier pigeons to come in, though. Like, yeah. they'll just sort of face plant the window. <laughs> they can take the elevator. <laughs> As long as the uh, the note that's attached to the carrier pigeon actually makes its way to the window, that's fine. We'll read it through the window. Good. <laughs> now, Uber. Uh, we've been talking about it for the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, they've made a splash here in Victoria and in New South Wales by releasing the Uber X service, which is a service that allows... Uh, you and me kind of drivers, anyone really, to to um, be paid to take people on mm. uh, on little trips. That's right, and at prices that are apparently fewer or fewer lower than uh, than taxis. Mm. The, the price is set by Uber themselves, but <coughs> it is uh, quite a lot lower than than what you. I did a little check from my place to somewhere in uh, South Melbourne the other day, and it was almost. Probably 80% cheaper. Wow. Wow. almost half. Hmm. So this week, though, it's uh, made news here in Victoria because uh, 
drivers that have been discovered in Victoria are being fined. That's right. Because it is, in fact, against uh, legislation. Um, yes. And, in fact, the Taxi Services Commission are going after them. <laughs> yeah, in fact, they've even been grabbing the app mm. and calling cars so that they can identify the drivers and then issue them with fines. And when they write a letter to these drivers, they say, well, even though Uber says that's not illegal, the, uh, they politely disagree. Mm. Um, on the grounds that it's not really carpooling, which is how Uber touts the, touts the service, not to crack too much of a pun there, but the way that Uber sells that service is to say that it is carpooling, as mm. in, oh, Mark, you just happen to be driving my way. Yeah. I might just I'll happen just to jump in the jump car. Jump in the car and just happen to leave some cash in the, That's right. <laughs> in the centre console or through the app, perhaps. That's I, right. But what the Taxi Services Commission says is, well, that's not really the case. You're obviously putting yourself out there saying, I'm willing to go wherever you want, which is really what a taxi does. Mm. And if you look at the Act, it says specifically that for carpooling, the carriage is incidental to the journey. Yeah. Right. Which it isn't when you say, hey, come to my house here and take me over there. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And honestly, I'm, I'm inclined to agree. I've been pretty sceptical of the whole Uber thing. It's, it's really just ride sharing. What could possibly go wrong? Well, mm. it's, it's not. You're setting yourself up as a taxi thing and you may as well say so, right? Now, we've talked about it in the last couple of weeks, haven't we? And yes. uh, mentioned it, that it's uh, this concept of disintermediation, of, of removing perhaps a uh, party out of the system. But when it comes down to it... Is it really disintermediation? I don't know if I'd agree. Hmm. Disintermediation specifically means things like, you know, you can buy direct from, say, Dell or Apple instead of going to a retailer. Mm. So you get rid of the middleman. So you get rid of the middleman. I mean, that's mm. the intermediary, right? That's why you're dis... You yeah, intermediary. So is yeah, this yeah, yeah. <laughs> disruption then? It's probably better to call it disruption. I know that Uber certainly loves to use that term when they talk about how great they are. Yep. Um, oh, we're disrupting the industry. You know, why don't you let us disrupt the industry, blah, blah, blah. Um, so it's probably more, probably more the term I'd use. Because it is really just replacing a, uh, a booking service that you get through the taxi companies yep. with another booking service that you use through, it just happens to be a worldwide That's right. Service. And it, it is also, you know, a really fantastic user experience. You know, you, hmm. you jump on the app, you see that there are cars around. It's like, oh, there's probably not going to be too much to worry about. I'll check it out. So... Yeah, and and from a booking experience, it is superior because it does tell you how far away your car is, which you tend not to get with a taxi. Yeah. Mm. Now Uber put their foot in it, didn't they? Whoops. They did. They uh, they they were trying to. I guess they were scrambling, perhaps, to respond to uh, Fairfax Media this week. Um, in fact, Ben Grubb, one of the writers for that, he's the chief technology writer for for Fairfax. Is he the chief one now? I, oh, I'm pretty sure he's. The yeah. meteoric rise of Ben. <laughs> Um, he, um, he, of course, put some questions out and yes. Hoover wanted to respond, but in the Passed them around the office. <laughs> passed them interstate, in fact, yeah. and just happened to just include the actual advice on how to respond in the email itself. That's right. And also, on the, the juicy little quote there, um, if you give him just one sentence, Ben will publish it. <laughs> really? I don't know. Really? Oh, yeah. That sounds a little. Yeah, I, I don't. don't know. I wouldn't. Mm. Well, a little trite. A little trite, but yeah. So a bit of an object lesson for anyone who is dealing with the media is maybe if you are going to discuss it with your colleagues, when you are going to respond to a journalist's questions, maybe a brand new email would be good. <laughs> <laughs> new email as opposed to forward. That's right. Mm, um, yeah, I guess if you give him the, the full comment, he will also publish it as he did. <laughs> Now, this is uh, Technogaze here on Joy 94.9, where we're covering some of the latest in technology, uh, 
What, we, what else do we cover? Consumer electronics, gadgets, gadgets. and games, and games, games and and movies as well. So the Human Rights um, Arts and Film Festival here in Melbourne, which is a uh, we are here at Joy ninety four point nine are a, a media partner. Um, next week we'll be uh, covering or we'll be showing the media uh, the movie The Internet's Own Boy, which is a uh, documentary on the life of Aaron Swartz. And straight after this, we'll have an interview with the director of that movie. So we'll be back with more in a few moments. Techno Gaze. Joy. You're listening to Joy 94.9, Techno Gaze here. And uh, we have with us uh, on the line a guy by the name of Brian Knappenberger. Now, The Internet's Own Boy is a film documentary about the life of Aaron Swartz a child prodigy who made his mark on the internet, espousing the virtues of keeping information free and available to every person, regardless of their socioeconomic or, indeed, geographical position. Now, throughout his life, he preempted the revelations of mass indiscriminate surveillance by the US government, as revealed by the now infamous Snowden leaks. Swats also helped establish websites that made available public information that, according to um, some interpretations of the US Constitution, should be free for its citizens to obtain, even though it was not. He also helped develop the very popular site Reddit. Now, sadly, uh, Aaron took his own life last year. We have the director and writer of The Internet's Own Boy, which is part of the lineup for the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival here in Melbourne. Brian Knappenberger joins us on the phone all the way from the US. Thanks for being there, Brian. Thanks for having me. We're fairly removed um, from what happens in the IT space in the US here in Australia. How familiar were you with um, with Aaron and his work prior to prior to his uh, his passing last year? Well, I had made a film called We Are Legion, the story of the hacktivist. So I was um, very, I was following lots of hacktivist cases. Um, I was following lots of hackers that had gotten to, into various kinds of legal trouble, uh, and particular people, people in the kind of protest, online protest space. So I was well aware of Aaron's uh, arrest right when it had happened. It was a two-year legal nightmare. Um, but one of the things that I thought was striking about it, as opposed to some of the other um, uh, sort of more prominent uh, in the media kind of hacking cases, uh, was that, that 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 Aaron actually actively kind of kept it quiet, and and it and it wasn't well known um, before he died. Um, and uh, I actually didn't really know that. I didn't really understand why why that was until I got into the film and I realized that he was, he, he was actively trying to keep it quiet because he didn't want to implicate his friends and he didn't want to anger um, the very aggressive prosecutors in this case. So he actually made an effort not to, uh, to, to bring his case out into the public and to kind of deal, deal with it in a very kind of, um, really the kind of isolated way, uh, which, which increased his own isolation, which of course is the worst thing that you can do. Uh, when you when you suffer from any kind of depression, indeed, it it did um, touch on uh, quite a fair bit of that, I, I guess, in the documentary. But although you make the point that um, you know he did try to keep it quiet as well, that uh, that he wa- it was part of his nature, perhaps, to to you know um, shy away from expressing himself, even even with his um, romantic partners, perhaps. 
Yeah, I think that's true um, on the one hand, but but on the other on the other hand, he I mean, he who certainly was a private person, and both of his kind of uh, uh, girlfriends that appear in the film um, that. Uh, his previous girlfriend and the girlfriend he was with at the time of his passing, um, both said that he did have that kind of that kind of um, kind of demeanor, almost that that uh, didn't want to kind of make a um, sort of public spectacle of himself. But at the same time, uh, he did lead a very public life. He was a kind of quasi celebrity in the in the uh, tech world. Um, he was very vocal on issues like SOPA, the Stop Online Piracy Act in the United States, um, in which he was, uh, you know, he was often appeared on uh, television uh, as a kind of somebody that can explain these kind of complex internet issues. So it, it was a, it was a kind of uh, there's a complexity to him that, um, on the one hand, it's true that he didn't want to bring attention to himself, but on the other hand, he took a very a very much a leadership role in some of these very public political. Mm. And he, in fact, was uh, doing all of his work on SOPA while he was under arrest, wasn't he? Or after he yeah, was arrested? Yeah, that's, that's the incredible thing. It didn't. Uh, he was going through this kind of private hell, this kind of two-year legal nightmare. But that didn't. That didn't sort of um, stop. It certainly didn't kind of even seem to slow his um, political ambitions, the kinds of things that he wanted to accomplish with grassroots organizing and and just kind of lending his putting his skills in the public interest. Um, this didn't seem like he missed a beat there. Aaron was a uh, a child prodigy, and throughout his life, you know, after seeing the movie, we learned that he was involved in many causes from a very very early age. So, do you think that you know his work on SOPA was just basically a continuation of what he saw were the things that he had to do in life, and he just played on with it and trying to disregard the other things that were going on in his life at the time? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he he was he was certainly um, very involved in internet communities and the kind of structure of an open uh, internet at a, from a very young age. He was he, uh, it was a lot of his energy in the kind of free culture movement. Um, but I do think that after they sold Reddit uh, to Condé Nast, um, and by the way, he making he made a move that made him a very rich nineteen-year-old. Mm. Uh, he turned his uh, attention to grassroots political organizing, to uh, things that were much broader than just internet-based, kind of broader social justice issues. Um, and SOPA, in a way, uh, kind of pulled him back into that space. It's not like, like he ever um, really left it. It's just that he, he did broaden his interest significantly past uh, internet-only issues uh, for most of his life. Now, for you personally, uh, Brian, um, how do you, how do you start on a project like this? Do you do you wake up one day and uh, uh, you know say that uh, this is a, an interesting story to be told, or you know did it did it just kind of fall in your lap, or what what was the catalyst for you to be involved in in this story? Yeah, I mean, I had just uh, finished a film called "We Are Legion: The Story of the Hacktivists" about about the non group kind of hacktivist collective anonymous. And I was talking on a panel in New York City with Quinn Norton about hacktivism. And um, uh, this was about a week after Aaron died. And uh, it was a very sort of somber affair. Lots of people on the panel knew him. Everybody at this uh, symposium that we were at seemed to have a story about Aaron. And I, being a filmmaker, uh, you know, I always have a camera with me. I, I just picked up a camera and started filming people's reactions. This was at the um, very beginning, also, of a 
whole wave of anger and frustration and sympathy that mm. that was kind of seizing the internet uh, about uh, about what these events, um, in, including really moving people that didn't know Aaron way beyond the kind of communities in which she was a kind of uh, quasi celebrity. Um, so I was I was interested in that. Why so much outpouring from so many people that didn't even know him? Why did his story respond? Uh, resonate so deeply with so many people, yep. and so I just started filming. Um, and but it wasn't a couple until a couple of months later that I realized I was making actually a full-length documentary. Right now, it, it, I, I imagine at that point in time as well, it was quite a public affair. You know, being so having so many people sort of outpouring of their 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 sympathies. Um, you you did um, you know involve quite a few people that were close to Aaron throughout the the documentary as well. Um, was was that a difficult thing to do? Did you did you have to reach out and sort of you know convince them that you weren't you know perhaps trying to um, make it a bigger thing than what it was or or anything like that? Or, or was it yeah. sort of you know what 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 was the situation with um with the family members? Yeah, I think that you know I think any filmmaker wants to get wants to uh, get people to open up about about things, and and this was a very very. Um, very, very sensitive issue. I think on the one hand, um, people were angry, they were frustrated, they were, um, it was very obviously very emotional for everybody that was close to Aaron. Um, they wanted to express that anger. Uh, they wanted to um, try to come to terms with it, which I think sometimes talking about it does. Um, and uh, and yet it's also very emotional, so it was very difficult. So it was a balance there. Um, between, I think, most people that were close to him wanting, wanting to come to terms with it and, and, and talk about it, and just the sheer kind of pain of actually reliving it. And, and, you know, I took that very seriously, and I took it as a respons- my responsibility to try to get the story right. And I think that once people, you know, people had seen my other work and they kind of knew, knew who I was already, um, so that helped. But uh, it was definitely my responsibility to... You know, take that emotion seriously, and and understand that it takes courage to open up uh, for a film like this. I don't think you make uh, great films without a little bit of courage on the part of the people in it. Yeah, indeed. Now, um, I guess back to Aaron. He, he was heavily involved um, in creating the Creative Commons licensing model. Uh, I believe that you're looking into using that sort of the the license to in in a, in a form to release this this movie, this documentary. Um, yeah, he was. Yeah, the, uh, Aaron was the technical architect of Creative Commons. Uh, it was obviously something that was very important to him. Mm. Uh, and so, uh, as a part of our release, we are going to uh, to incorporate that. Our model is basically inspired by uh, the science fiction author and activist, and, and just all around great writer uh, Cory Doctorow, who was also a friend of Aaron's and a proponent of Creative Commons. Um, he both sells his books and um, on Amazon and and uh, employs a kind of Creative Commons license as well. Mm. Um, it's an interesting model. Uh, Cory Doctorow has become a New York Times bestseller, um, but it's also a model that doesn't, you know, it doesn't um, criminalize uh, sharing of information. So what we're doing is we're releasing the film United States uh, June 27th, uh, across theaters across the country, and then we're, we're also going to release the same day and date online uh, with iTunes and all other kind of video-on-demand platforms, including through Vimeo. 
wow. and um, and part of the Vimeo uh, deal is a Creative Commons license, non-commercial uh, share alike license. So it's a hybrid. Uh, it's really uh, we think speaks exactly to the kind of thing that Creative Commons was trying to um, the, the path, the middle path between piracy and and full kind of um, you know. Next prosecuting of people who pirate yeah. uh you know it's it's a it's a smart use of copyright and so that's that's the path that we're going down hmm. indeed now the i don't end- think it's ever been done before to be honest it might be the first film that's ever tried that kind of combination well hopefully it uh it goes well <laughs> and uh yeah. it uh yeah. it you know provides a, a sort of path forward for other films to be to be released in the in the same manner now, the Internet's Own Boy will be screened as part of the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival here in Melbourne. It's on next Thursday, uh, the 15th of May, screening at 6.15pm at Acme in uh, Fed Square here in Melbourne. So, Brian Nappenberger, thank you for joining us to talk about the film. Much appreciated. Of course. Thank you very much for having me. Cheers. Thank you. We should add that if you are looking to seek help with issues of anxiety or depression, you can make contact anytime with Lifeline on 131114 or browse to www.lifeline.org.au or the Suicide Callback Service on 1300 659 467 or indeed you may wish to speak to your local GP for a referral to a counselling service. You're listening to Technogaze here on Joy 94.9. We'll be back with more in a few moments. Technogaze. Technogaze here on Joy 94.9, where we cover some of the latest in technology, gadgets, and consumer electronics. And gaming. And gaming. Oh, oh my God. So much gaming news. So this is a new thing for us, really, isn't it? Well, it's, it's the second week running. that We've got a gaming segment. And um, You're what welcome. is it to talk about? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know stuff. Nintendo games. have made it this week, right? So they're uh, they've they've not really sort of been particularly inclusive. Unimpressed yeah. face right here. Yeah, this is um, actually a story that made mainstream media, which was actually pretty surprising. But mm. Nintendo is working on a life sim, which is called Tomodachi Life for 3DS. And um, basically, the way it works is it uses your Mii character, which is essentially an avatar you create on the Wii, Wii U, or 3DS, which represents yourself. And the idea is that your Miis, uh, it's, so it's yourself on the console, because like it's such a family-friendly console that uh, you're supposed to create a me for every member of your family. So every mm. time you jump on, your me is who you are and your, your mum will have a me and your dad will have a me and your brother yeah. will have a me. And even if you don't live in the same house, like you can swap me's with your friends and all the rest of it and they come over and visit and you know that, they've made this whole big thing about it. Right. So in um, Tomodachi Life, it's basically using your me and it's also like a family environment. But the thing is, they're not going to allow same-sex relationships. So... You're me. If you are in a same-sex relationship, you're me, and your partner's me can't be together. So, according to Nintendo, what they're saying is that you can have a relationship with opposite sex, but not same sex, because yes. of this. Yeah. In this supposed fantasy world that they've created, I guess. And um, it's, it's pretty interesting though, because uh, it's a life sim, and everyone knows. The Sims, which came out in year 2000, that was one of the first to actually allow same-sex relationships. I don't think you could get married in that one, but in Sims 2 you could, because mm. they were very progressive with that. And um, so it's interesting that 14 years on, Nintendo is giving the life sim thing a go, and they're not allowing relationships with same-sex 
Mm. couples. Now, they actually made this statement and it says, uh, the relationship options in the game represent a playful alternate world rather than a real-life simulation. We hope that all of our fans will see that Tomodachi Life was intended to be a whimsical and quirky game and that we were absolutely not trying to provide social commentary. Come on. So, in today's day and age, if you're explicitly excluding same-sex relationships, you are making a comment. Exactly. Yes. Totally. Social commentary right there. And it's perhaps uh, the the conservative nature of Nintendo. I mean, they've, they're traditionally a little bit more worried about the, um, you know, their supposed Family. demographic. Yep. Mm-hmm. But if they did it in Sims 2... It's, the Sims, though, never appeared on um, f- Nintendo consoles, I think. Oh, no, it did appear on the DS and, and the handhelds, but I don't... It's not really a Nintendo thing. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So oh, okay. They, that's third party, so they couldn't really control what happens in it. But... Um, what I was going to say is, I kind of need to... I feel like I need to come to Nintendo's defense just a little bit. I think they're very, very naive, but I also think it has quite a lot to do with the fact that it's a Japanese company and um, homosexuality in Japan is still very taboo and hush-hush. So um, they're very big on the whole family, uh, patriarchal, you know... Mm. Like structure. Mm. Yeah, that thing. Thank you for a word. <laughs> Yeah, and, and it, it goes to the culture of Japan, but it is marketed as a worldwide uh, game. That's yeah. right, and, and it's not like Nintendo hasn't been very prominent in, you know, America and, hmm. you know, Europe and Australia and everything for some time. It's not... It shouldn't be a surprise. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. And the, the response has been pretty much like, oh, we, we just don't think in those terms. And it's like, well, you know, you kind of need to if you're really going to be marketing yourself to the, to the broader audience of the world. That's right. Um, understandably that, you know, certain culture, cultural sensitivities exist, but, you know, maybe, maybe they shouldn't even uh, offer any relationship ability at all if, if that's you know a concern mm. so is there any sort of organized protest actually there's a there's a fellow um who uh his name's ty marini and uh he started a campaign to get nintendo to put it in and um he's been encouraging people to get on social media and use the hashtag me quality M-double-I quality. Mm-hmm. Oh, ah, cute. Play on words. Um, he says, I want to be able to marry my real-life fiancé's me, but I can't do that in the game. My only options are to marry some female me, to change the gender of either my me and my fiancé's me and other male me's, or to completely avoid marriage altogether and miss out on the exclusive content that comes with it. Uh, so that campaign is on the move at the moment. One of the things that does irritate me about this is um, before... Uh, shipping it off to US and worldwide, um, they made a few changes of the game to localize it to the US, which was replacing certain sports with, I think it was football or something like that. Right. I can't really recall. So they've made changes to the game to appease an international audience, but the thing is they just haven't but made not that one. the relationship change. Come on. Yep. Look, it's, it's, no, nah, it's not on. I'm sorry. I, I don't think I'll be buying it. Other um, uh, Nintendo-y kind of news? Is Pokemon mm. a thing now? Again? It, a thing? Again? Did it ever stop? Uh, I kind of receded into the background. Like, when we all grew up and we thought we were a little bit too cool, but yep. n- now it's back on. Yeah, so <laughs> Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire that were originally on the Game Boy Advance are now being remade for the 3DS. Yes. Now, this is not the first time that a Pokemon game has been remade for a new audience. Mm. Um, the last one that came out was actually all brand new, but the ones before that, uh, black and white, were not actually. No, but before that, sorry, Heart Gold and Soul Silver were remakes. Yep. Um, and so the the you know original sort of games from then have been you know fluffed up and remade and you know a few extra bits of plot and stuff to keep it interesting. Ruby and uh, Ruby and Sapphire are two you know massive classics like people your and my age that was you know 
close to our first Pokemon or, you know, maybe a little older. Yeah, I got to admit, though, um, I started with the very first few Pokemon games, which were red and black, uh, not black, red and, <laughs> red and blue. And um, as I was growing up, it was kind of this thing where, you know, how Pokemon becomes less popular. So you're like, oh, no, I don't like Pokemon. I don't like, oh, play that. Pokemon's for kids. Yeah, oh. there was that whole thing. So that was Can't generally <laughs> around, yeah, it was around the time of Ruby and Sapphire. So these are two games that I didn't actually purchase before but i'm definitely going to purchase them now mm. as they've been remade and um it kind of got me thinking that um no don't know what i was going to say <laughs> <laughs> are you um, looking forward to it yes i am i am totally it's um it's one of those things that no matter how many times it's been remade it still sells a bundle like i was looking at sales figures for the last few games and the highest one recently was 17 million copies <gasps> for i think it was uh, Diamond and Pearl. Far out. Yeah, that is right, isn't it? Yeah. It's huge. They sell bajillions. And, you know, there are a lot of really dedicated players who mm. um, who will go and buy every version of the game. So Diamond, Pearl and Platinum, which, which you know, they all came out sort of close to each other, all three. Yes, I remember what I was going to say. Okay, so <laughs> oh. it was um, because it kind of wasn't as cool anymore or whatever. The people that originally played it have grown up to the point now where it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Like, you're not yeah. in high school anymore. So That's right. So, who gives a toss if somebody thinks it's not cool? It's about the nostalgia factor now. So, yep. as an adult, you can play this game and, and enjoy yourself and not be ashamed of it. Yeah. And retro is cool these days anyway, right? Retro oh, yeah. is pretty cool. Even with that, though, I mean, the formula of Pokemon is, is relatively timeless. You know, like, the storyline is a little bit juvenile and, you know, oh, you're a little kitty and you're going out, you know, dealing with Pokemon and catching Pokemon and obsessing about Pokemon and everything is about Pokemon, but which is a very sort of simplistic sort of view. But the actual mechanics of Pokemon um, really sort of, I find attractive um, to that whole sort of, you know, D20 gaming style, um, you know, really nerdy sort of statistics and stuff like that and, you know, memorising bits and pieces. We have a, a text, uh, an email, in fact. Uh-huh, from from an emailer? Hoenn um, confirmed. Yes. yes. That is the name of the location in the game. I don't get it. Don't <laughs> Mark and I were giving each other these looks of, what does that mean? Oh, it's the region <laughs> where you can catch the Pokemon. That's um, right. Bless. Now, uh, very quickly as well, and this one got uh, my attention because I'm a bit of a Kevin Spacey fan. <gasps> Call Who of, isn't? You know, well, yeah. You can, how, how, how can you not be? Mm-hmm. Call of Duty. Yes. Is a game. Now, Kevin Spacey has been uh, his most recent sort of performance, uh, big performance is, is, of course, in the TV show House of Cards, the US version of House of Cards. And he's featured quite prominently in House of Cards as, having, as, as being a fan of the Call of Duty game on Xbox. Uh, I wonder if that right. was written in... Well, product placement on purpose. Well, yeah. So, so what's happened? Kevin Spacey is lending his face and his voice to the game, and they're using mocap to to catch his performance. Yeah, yeah. to catch his performance and stick it in the game. And there's a trailer of it out that's just been released quite recently, and um, it looks pretty good. I got to yeah. say, he's it, narrating pretty much the whole. Th- oh, we should have got some audio so we could listen to it. Um, mm. He he's pretty much narrating the whole thing. Um, there's a lot of, you know, pew-pew action shots and stuff as well. But there's Kevin Spacey's character, and I'm, I'm gathering that he's a bad guy. I've been kind of trying to avoid mm. spoilers. Bit of a bad boy. Um, you know, carrying on about, you know, this, that, and the other and everything. And it's it's so unmistakably him. It's very full circle. I mean, it's it's his face and it's his voice as well. Yeah. Perhaps and, of course, House of Cards being so popular at the moment. I mean, Kevin Spacey is so well-known anyway that you look at that. It's not like, oh, he's, it's, it's totally him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, in fact, it's, almost the same character, the... the um What's his name? He's kind of a Francis. He's kind of raving a little bit, but I don't think he's. I don't think he's actually the uh, <laughs> representative for any. He doesn't quite have area. the same southern accent as. No, that as is put on for House of Cards. Yes, I'm. I'm 
I find it really creepy at the moment, though, um, the number of, of performance captures that are going into games where somebody looks almost quite right, but not quite. Nice. Yeah, he has this, like, plasticine kind of look to his face. Yeah, there's actually a term for that that feeling, which yeah, is the it's... uncanny valley. So, your, your liking of a, a simulated... Uh, person mm. um, takes this massive nose dust so that the more realistic it gets that you're like yeah that looks really amazing that looks really amazing then it gets to this point where you're just slightly wrong yeah and your attitude just goes bam not interested yep. you look like a creepy person you, you freak know. me out you're freaking me out so google it up uncanny mm. valley it's it's a remarkable phenomenon but there is also the 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 um the trailer for Call of Duty up online. The so new Call of Duty, that's right. Uh, you can Google it as well. You're listening to Technogaze here on Joy 94.9. We'll be back with more, including Japan and their uh, their solar array, their, their space-based solar array, right after this. Joy 94.9. Technogaze here on Joy 94.9. And uh, we're talking tech. As usual. Consumer electronics. And also space-based electronics or space-based power. We're talking science fiction. How cool is this? So Japan, they want to build a space-based solar energy farm. Right. Uh, What appears to be taken out of a science fiction story, the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency Mm -hmm. is looking to use space-based platforms to collect solar energy and beam it down to Earth as microwaves. That would be converted uh, uh, back to electricity. I think this is so cool. <laughs> I'm so excited for this. Like, it's every anime fantasy I've ever had for <laughs> sci-fi anime. I'm like, yes, get me up on that space station. I'll be there manning the controls. Mm. <laughs> and there have been lots of science fiction books with this type of theme. Yeah, yes. Collecting energy and beaming it down. In fact, yes. games have been based on it as well. The, the possibility of, of having, um, in particular, microwave-beamed electricity down to Earth. That, it's pretty amazing. What could possibly go wrong, though? I think in SimCity it was actually a disaster that you could have oh, occur. that's the game you're thinking of, mm, oh, SimCity. You know, no, that I sounds really, amazing. The only reference I have, really. <laughs> so so uh, the agency, which, which you can actually call JAXA for short, which I think is really cute, um, but they, they said, look, it's, it's going to be pretty difficult and it's going to be very expensive. But remember, Japan is so reliant on nuclear technology. Hmm. And we all know what happened with their uh, their plants recently and what a risk it was yes. in Fukushima. And I'm not saying that, you know, um, nuclear energy is always bad or whatever, but obviously those sorts of risks are, are you know... Why not diversify as a result? That's yeah. right. That's the thing that gets me excited most is not just it's all sci-fi coming true or whatever. It's the fact that we're now going into a new age where it's new energy and green energy that's going to be yes. used instead of nuclear and, and fossil fuels and stuff. And I think if this actually does happen, that's when like the whole space age kind of sci-fi movies that you've been seeing, like the, the flying cars are going to finally eventually come. Mm-hmm. I think so anyway. I'm excited. Mm. <laughs> I saw a certain um, brand name. Well, I'm just going to name it. Virgin, of course, they, they've got their spaceship one they're developing. You know, there's a bit of consumer ability to get into space right there. It's, yes. It's all starting to come together. I, I did hear that their, uh, their loyalty program, members of their loyalty program received an email going, do you want to upgrade to space class? <laughs> With the number of points I've got, I'm lucky if I can upgrade to a free flight to Brisbane. But... <laughs> It's good to dream, right? Yeah. Do you think your mile points will be the same? One mile in space is one point? <laughs> or may there be a discount? <laughs> they might get traded in for something else. Now, there's no timeline on this, is there? 
No, not at this stage. Oh, no, they, I think they, they talked about it being sort of developed by 2020. Oh, okay. Wow. Uh, a, a working sort of prototype, I guess. That sorts. was the... Um, they wanted to get... Yeah, the prototype started in 2020 and then go for the full production by 2030. Yeah. That's not too far away. That's... Yeah. I mean, amazing. If you consider how long it would take, it's 2014, right? Imagine how long it would take to build any sort of conventional power plant now. Mm. How long would it take with all the planning and everything? Roughly the same amount, particularly Probably. for nuclear. And, mm. and the new, newer generations of nuclear power and you know, stuff that's in development today won't actually be in production ready and mm. for another for a similar timeline. So sure. you know, why, the, why, why not? Is what I say. And if anybody can do it, I think the Japanese can. Too yes. right. They can yeah. do that, but they can't do same-sex relationships in the week. Oh. <laughs> now, um, and slightly more chilling news, uh, Vladimir Putin. He continues his attack on all things the web and yes. internet. Uh, and he's, um, he's continuing his steps to stop criticism of his regime. Uh, the Russian president signed a new law that will require bloggers to register with the government. Creepy. Mm. Mm, it's the so-called bloggers law that says that any site with more than 3,000 daily visitors will be considered equivalent to a newspaper and will have to certify the accuracy of facts presented like a paper. Mm, um, look, there's... We've kind of done some slightly, not slightly the same, but we've we've got a similar sort of rule here, or at least we used to, where under the Electoral Act, if you provided anything that could be construed as electoral commentary, mm. then you had to blog under your real name and have a little thing that says electoral commentary is, you know, I take, yeah. I take responsibility for this. Yeah. This just takes it one step even further because, you see, it's one thing to talk about democracy and stuff like that, which I still think is a little bit gross when you do it here. But if you have more than 3,000 daily visitors and you're just posting pictures of pop stars or cupcake yeah. recipes or pictures of your dog, I mean... You still need to register and and make yourself non-anonymous. Non- non-anonymous. Yeah. And it's a very, very broad net that they um, used for this because a blog is classified as anybody who's posting information online, even on social networks. Yes. So, you know, what that means is that um, yeah, under the law is that anything that you blog has to be kept as an archive for six months. On Russian servers. On Russian servers. So if you make a post on Facebook, which is obviously not on a Russian server, then you are in breach of the law, and Facebook themselves are in breach of the law, hmm. and possibly Facebook can be banned. Or, well, I mean, why not just do what plenty of people have done with China, where there's a lot of repressive sort of stuff going on, and just say, you know what, we're just not going to make our stuff available to you anymore. Yeah. Very chilling indeed to what the internet, and, and particularly, you know, in the in light of the Aaron Swartz movie yes mm. uh, and the discussion around that it's actually directly the opposite um mm. happening perhaps on the other side of um of politi- the political spectrum of course being russia mm-hmm. not necessarily touting themselves as being a democracy but still and it's not just russia with uh problems with apps and the internet is it yes this is perhaps a bit more specific though uh iran is looking to censor the uh, app whatsapp and what is the reason for this? It's a bit ridiculous. If you because ask it's me. owned by an American Zionist, namely Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg. Right. Mm. Wait, what? <laughs> Just because he is of a particular faith, they are deciding that that it should be banned. Yep. But, he's, but, but he's just the owner. Like, what? 
But one of the things is the Iranian censor is going up against the Iranian communications minister who responded that the government was completely against the ban. So it's not really mm. sure who's going to run out, who's going to win out on this. But the really ironic thing is that the government minister also posted their comment on Iran's public Twitter account. Now, the irony is, of course, that both Facebook and Twitter have been banned since 2009 <laughs> in Iran. Not that this even makes it okay, because it certainly doesn't, but I don't know if Mark Zuckerberg has ever even made his thoughts about Zionism. No, I read something, public ever. I read no. something that, yeah, his thoughts are unknown. So, yeah, look, a lot of horrible rhetoric goes on in Iran about mm. that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, oh, gross. But Gah. Gah. I think it's my comment. Um, and also, while we're on the topic of, of censorship and, you know, the NSA, um, it's a big sort of censoring body, perhaps, or, or perhaps a... A little closer uh, to home as well. Yeah. Quite quite good friends with, with our own uh, intelligence agencies. Uh, Catching up with Google for yeah. friendly coffees and chats and... <laughs> Friendly coffees in you know, I suppose. security briefings and so forth. There's been some emails circling around indicating that Google execs have met with NSA, the uh, NSA hierarchy. Um, there's nothing to indicate whether Google knew about or participated in any NSA activity. Um, particularly, you know, we're talking particularly around the Snowden leaks and the massive surveillance that's occurring and the, the sort of the undercurrent that there's nothing proven, but there's perhaps this concept that. Google are allowing access to uh, certain transmitted information through their systems. So they say they're just catching up to talk about, you know, swapping expertise and stuff because we like to catch up with experts. And, of course, the NSA are experts on this, that and the other. But Mm. come on. Now, one of the emails from the NSA to Google say that uh, a group um, recently came to agreement, and they're talking about that group being the likes of Google, uh, Apple, and Microsoft, recently came to an agreement to, on a set of core security principles. Now, that's very, you know, broad terminology, right? But mm. it's, you know, it. what could it mean? Could it mean, you know, the ability to access their servers? Or could it be just, oh, we're, we're trying to, you know, stamp out this illegal hacking that occurs? There could be the any world. number of things. Look. Well, according to Google, it was um, that they're working really hard to protect their users from cyber attacks, and they always talk to the experts. <laughs> that sounds so nice they to should. me. It does. I think it sounds lovely. Yeah. Although, is that, if that's truly the case, I, I can't say. Mm. There are a whole bunch of uh, quotes on this one in the article on VentureBeat, which I'm about to tweet now. So um, they're quite juicy in themselves. You just read them. You know, really you can are. kind of read two meanings into it, perhaps in light of the, the Snowden leaks, or mm. as not. And of course, if you want to hang out with those experts, the NSA apparently is recruiting right now. They sent out some slightly garbled text in a tweet and said, get amongst it. And it looks like it was just a bit of a, you call it a butt tweet. <laughs> we accidentally sit on the, uh, on on the phone. phone and smash out some letters. But in fact, it was uh, actually an encrypted or an encoded message. Ooh. And if you could figure out the code, then you could find out how to apply for a job at the NSA. And what did they actually say in their message? Want to know what it takes to work at NSA? Check back each Monday in May as we explore careers essential to protecting our nation. Sounds uh, interesting. I think it's brilliant that they they did it that way. Yeah. There are other companies that have done similar. But in reality, it only works for the first two people who then put it somewhere up on the internet and everybody else Googles it. Oh, that's true. That's kind of a good skill to have, though. Yeah, that's true. Yes, now we are getting to the end of the show. It's five minutes to one here on TechnoGaze on Joy 94.9. We will be back with a wrap-up of the show in a few moments. 
Techno Gaze here on Joy 94.9. Sure is. It is four minutes to one, so we don't really have very much time left, but... We did promise to tell you about who gets to handle Larry Ellison's... <laughs> Balls. Balls. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not sugarcoat this, right? <laughs> it's, totally, it's totally about Larry Ellison's... His basketballs, that is. Now, ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, now, so he is a rich man. He has a yacht, and he has a basketball court on this yacht, and as has, one does. He has been a massive sports fan for a long time, apparently. He so he used to, he used to, you know, cut class and uh, and go shoot hoops hmm. in high school and whatnot. And of course, he's the owner of some very expensive yachts that have won many prizes, including the America's Cup. Mm-hmm. Now. Because he has a basketball court on this yacht. On his yacht. Oh, like, my goodness. What happens when you have basketballs being thrown around on a yacht? Well, they, they up... go over the edge. And you'd lose them, wouldn't you? I think so, yeah. Not, yeah. not if you have someone following you in your yacht in their powerboat, specifically to catch... One powerboat? <laughs> I assume it's just one powerboat. Perhaps two, <laughs> according to this little snippet of, of we've seen... Pass around. It is right. So it's uh, it's Tom Eamon who is uh, Larry Ellison's uh, um, yachting manager or America's oh. Cup manager, um, who obviously knows quite a lot about what Larry does with his enormous boats. Um, <laughs> and if he, <laughs> sorry, Whoa. I like big boats and I cannot lie. <laughs> so Larry's obviously fond of his balls and he doesn't want to lose them in the ocean. That's fair enough. That is fair enough. He's, he's keeping got the oceans clean. And he's got someone to follow him around and clean up his. Send the back of the boat. That's right. <laughs> We're not On being that. pure all, are we? No, not at all. You are listening to Techno Games. <laughs> trying where, to, where trying to liven it up for the end of the show. Um, <laughs> that's all we have time for today. If you missed any part of the show, or perhaps you're looking to peruse previous episodes, you can do so by browsing to joy.org.au slash technogaze. That's right. Coming and up. Yes. iTunes and things. Oh, yes, sir. Mm-hmm. We, we do have our podcast published up there. Um, coming up next is a Joy News Bulletin with Shannon, Shannon Gillies. And straight up after that is the Nudie Foodie, looking rather dapper today in a bit of a collar. Mm-hmm. Mm. Buffing his fingernails there in Studio 3. <laughs> As you do. Um, thank you for joining us again, Johnny. Balls. I mean, bye. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Rainer, as well. Got to catch them all. <laughs> and, and your catchphrase for today? His buttons. What else? <laughs> catch you next week. Have a good weekend. I program my home computer. Beam myself into the future. Techno Gaze on Joy 94.9. This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. Go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy. Joy.